delicate there on the mouse, but we'll see once I think it'll work. All right, uh, welcome. Good to have the little guys and gals with us. You know, I've been a teacher for a good many years, and so I like to tell stories. I have a story for you this morning. And uh, I'll just, you don't need to look up there, but this is a little piece uh, that comes from history. I teach history, and I love history. I hope you do, too. You know, uh, not too many years ago, not even your grandfathers and grandmothers would remember it, though. Back a ways, there was a big war. It's called World War One. You ever heard of it? Uh-huh, got a couple hands here. And then there was another big world uh, uh, war, World War Two. You've heard of that one? All right. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about something that happened between those wars. But first of all, uh, in World War One, and actually in many wars, World War One and before, do, most people did not die from getting shot. Most soldiers died because they got sick. So out of the hundreds and thousands and millions and millions of men and women who died in the wars, uh, most of them died from disease, just getting sick. Now, war is a terrible thing, really. And uh, I, I don't want to tell you things that are too gross here, but just to give you a little bit of an idea, uh, you know, before... Not too long ago, when a soldier maybe got shot in the leg and, uh, and his leg was mangled up below the knee or something like that, they didn't really know what to do with that problem. Does your dad have a meat saw hanging out in your garage somewhere when he does deer or something like that? Well, they make things called meat saws. And they saw things. You Just like you would saw a piece of wood, you can saw with a meat saw through bone and such like. This is a terrible thing, but back in those days, you got shot in the leg, and your leg got sore with what they called gangrene. Terrible thing. They didn't know what else to do with it, so they would lay you up on a table, and they'd have a couple people hold you down, and they'd take a meat saw, and they'd just saw it off right above the knee or something like that, because that was the only way to save the life. And then they would take, and uh, it was a long and torturous thing. They'd pour awful nasty things on top of that to try to try to help it out on the wound and sew it together the best they could and hope for the best. Even after they had done that, ten days later, lots of those men would have a very sore leg and it would start to turn black on the end, it meant it was infected, and they were getting gangrene. And as sure as I'm standing here, high percentage of the times, they would die. And this is the reason, one of the reasons why, uh, as the record is, more men and women died in warfare from disease than anything else. Now, into World War One, and if you were to see, if you can... Read, you might see there, September 1928. Here's a little history. So World War I ended in 1918. This is 10 years later. And World War II began in 1939, according to most records. So right in between. Here's the story. 
It's about a scientist. His name is Alexander Fleming. And Alexander Fleming, he liked, he liked to do cultures. Now, I'm talking to your moms and dads or grandpas about culture. Well, here's a culture. And what Alexander Fleming did with most of his life, he had these little plastic dishes, oh, about that round. And they stood about that high, and they had a lid on the top of them. And, and uh, when, he would get, when he would come into his office in the morning, he'd walk out into the laboratory, and one of the things that he did was uh, he would heat up this liquid. Its technical name is agar, A-G-A-R, but it's, uh, it was, we, we call it a medium, but it's, it's beef broth. I don't know if you've ever eaten beef broth or not. You ask your mom, she'll know about it. Uh, but they, they would, he would take some of that, put a little gelatin in it, Heat it up a little bit, pour it into a, they called it a Petri dish, that little round plastic thing that I talked about. So you pour that into that plastic dish, let it cool down in a, uh, until it became gelled, a little bit like jello. If you touched it, it was kind of like jello. And then he might walk over to another place in his laboratory where he had all these little flask and, and uh, uh, pipettes, little glass things tubing and jars and so on. They'd open one very carefully. He'd take a little stick or something and put it down in there, scratch it a little bit, come back to his, his dish. They had that jelly in it, and, and he would scratch it. What he was doing was putting some bacteria in there that he wanted to grow. He was trying to grow some tiny, tiny little organisms, just like you might want to grow maybe some peas or something in your garden, but you're over your garden planting them. Well, he's planting these little tiny things in his dish because he wants to grow them and study, and, and study them. Okay? Now, remember, it's called a culture. <laughs> and here's the story. I, one, t- one day, he took one of those Petri dishes and he put in it a pretty, a pretty nasty bacteria, one that could actually kill you. But he was careful not to let, let himself get infected with it, see. He put it in there, set it aside, and there are some details about the way these do the, uh, the way these scientists do these things, but he just wanted to grow bacteria only, not weeds, you know, like you might in a garden. He wanted just the bacteria. But he come back a couple of days later and he looked in his plastic dish, and mind you, what he saw in there was indeed his growing bacteria, but also something he didn't plan, he didn't think would be there. It's called a mold. Do you know what mold is? Uh-huh, you know what it is. You've seen it on bread, right? Nasty old stuff. Well, let me tell you what happened here. Here's this dish with this nasty bacteria growing and this mold, this green mold over here growing in the same dish. Oh, he said I goofed up. I didn't want that mold in there. But being a really careful scientist, he went ahead and he looked at it very, very carefully. Hmm. He noticed something. He noticed that where the mold was, right around the edge of the mold, for about a quarter of an inch or so, there were no bacteria growing. Remember, that bacteria is nasty stuff. The rest, the whole dish was covered with bad bacteria, a spot of mold, and right around that mold, nothing. It was clear. And Alexander Fleming, you can see his name up there, he said to, ah, 
He said, no, that's strange. Why is there no bacteria right around that penicillin? And that set him to thinking. Now you see a big word up here, and if you can read it, you might see penicillin. Have you ever heard of penicillin? What is it? Well, you're kind of on the right track, and you get it from mold, actually. The mold produces the penicillin, and I'll just be quick with this. I'll tell you what it does. Today, you, you can use penicillin if you, if you put it in your body. It'll kill bacteria. Now, they don't use much of it anymore, but it started the production of a whole series of chemicals that today can be used so that you don't need to saw that leg off. Remember how I told you they sawed the leg off? Oh, no. Nowadays, if I got a bullet through my leg or an arrow because it was out hunting and somebody missed shot or whatever, they'll remove that and they'll just give me a, a shot of, today we call them antibiotics. But there are things that will kill nasty bacteria. Uh, and, and so today... Not nearly as many people die because of those kinds of infections. Now, I don't like war. I hate war terribly. But if we just flash forward, I told you a World War I story. Now, remember, World War II happened after this. And there, oh, there still were millions of people who died in that war. But not nearly as many from getting their legs sawed off or some gangrenous infection. And it was because one time there was a man who was doing a little experiment in his science room. Remember this when you go to science class now on Monday. He was doing very careful work one day looking at his culture that he had made with, with a mold and a nasty bacterium and figured out how to make or derive or gain a chemical, a particular product that they called penicillin at that time, that probably saved, if not your life, some of your parents' lives, if not your parents' lives, some of your grandparents' lives. Some of us are here today because of it. Some careful study of culture. Now that's enough for the story. Thank you for coming and listening. So you may go back and sit with your parents. And for the rest of you, you can see where I'm headed with this. <laughs> so creating culture, or the maybe just beginning here this morning by talking about the importance of culture. Galen was right last evening. One of the points I was making to you is that in Christian culture, it seems to me as though the 20th century was dominated and fascinated with the salvation story or the pathway to salvation. A totally appropriate thing. Uh, and certainly uh, truer than I can even say it's true. However, we, we became very adept at this. I have respect for Billy Graham, but just, just look at a Billy Graham crusade. I don't know if you've ever read the background stories to how, how Billy Graham came to create his crusades and the hard work they put into what it actually takes to get people to make decisions. Decisions for Christ. I want you to hear me right. I'm not against that. 
But the problem is, is enormous amounts of energy we're throwing into actually figuring out the details and learning the techniques that work to get people into tents and to get them to walk the sawdust trail. I walked it myself, mind you, under the, the, the George Brunk uh, uh, revivals. Uh, so, you know, just that's where the efforts went. And they went into uh, mission work and all of that. I always hesitate to talk about this in this way because it'll feel to you as though I'm downing it. I'm not doing that so much as to saying that happened while we neglected a huge portion of what Christianity is about. And that is the development of Christian culture. Billy Graham himself has said his, I know he's gone, uh, but uh, had, you can read the statistics yourself about the number of people that the Billy Graham Crusades thinks, at least, actually maintain a Christian life and build on that initial sawdust trail walking and, and have a sustainable Christian experience. If I remember right, it's somewhere around 3%. That's too low. That's just too low. <laughs> it's way too low. Well, that's my point. My point is the neglect has been Christian culture. To be fair with Billy Graham, he understood this, and his crusade system worked very, very hard at developing, developing discipleship systems and trying to get local congregations to pick up and carry forward. So I just want to be fair and say that was true. I'm also still saying there was enormous neglect here, and that's, I think, we need some recovery here. And that really is the core of my burden for the church in our day is what are we doing about creating Christian culture? You might call it discipleship. Uh, you can give it other terminology too, uh, other terms as well. But that's what I have in focus here. So if I just jump forward a tad bit here at this thing, I'd go, boy, okay. I'm, I'm wondering if I step over there to swipe that. Hmm. Oh, there we go. Might just take a little, I don't know, a little experience here to figure out how this thing works. So just a few lessons we might learn from the Petri dish here, thinking about this issue that I have in mind, uh, if I can see from here. Uh, four words that come to mind uh, that just maybe help us to think about this. First one is a pathogen. Cultures have pathogens in them. Pathogens are disease-producing. Pathogens kill. Okay, so you think about that. Every culture has them. They have downers. And let me be careful to say that even our own beloved culture, uh, you, you, you just be aware that uh, th there are spots in there that are problematic. Uh, just let me give you one so that you, you, you understand what I'm talking about. The fact that there could be abusers of women uh, in our churches, hidden without being known, or even sometimes being known and not nobody coming to terms with it, it's a problem. That's pathogenic. That's a problem. Okay, so don't think that I'm pointing everywhere out there. The fact of the matter is we have to think. Every culture has the capacity to grow pathogens. Real problems. There are ways to deal with that. You see some words here used. So sterilization. Don't happen to like sterilization. That means you kill everything. <laughs> you, know, you, you, you just decide, to, wow, that's a bad thing. Let's just wipe it out. Well, if you wipe it out, you wipe out the good things too at the same time. 
Of course, I could, ex I could expand on all of these, but I'm not going to. Just saying, just think about this a little bit. Take some of these terms and think about them. There are the antibiotics that I just got done talking about. Fascinating thing is about an antibiotic is this. It, it has the capacity to kill the right thing and not the wrong thing. Because there are a lot of things that will actually kill that, uh, 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 those bacterium that were in Alexander Fleming's culture. There's a, a turpentine will do them in, but I don't suggest you drink it. It's not, really, it's not a good idea to use that as a method to, thank you very much, brother. That, that's really helpful. Oh, give us just a moment here. There you go. That's right. That stuff always works that way. But. All right, now we're back on the page. Thank you. That, that helped me out there quite a bit. Uh, so as I'm saying here, why well, antibiotics will... Uh, properly designed will, will uh, kill the right thing and not the wrong thing. And all that sounds really good, but those of you just a little bit familiar with, with this know that after a while we become immune to uh, the antibiotics can actually create other problems. Uh, so you, know, you have to be careful how you deal with this problem that is actually in the culture. It's not just a simple matter. Third in here is you can use vaccine, uh, vaccines or you can inoculate and so on. I'd have you turn to Matthew chapter 13 just briefly and look at a passage here that I know you are very, very familiar with. But just to emphasize and maybe underscore the scriptural basis for what I'm trying to present to you, the passage I shared with you last evening would be worth looking at, but I, I'm afraid we just uh, run out of time here. But the, the 1 Corinthians 3 chapter, remember, passage, uh, where Paul says to us, now Christ is the foundation, but let every man be careful how he builds on it. That's culture. It's culture building. It's not, it's not the only thing, but that's part of it. Be careful how you build on it. He goes on to say, that from what I can tell in that passage, and Brother Leon, you can correct me later if I'm wrong, but uh, when I read that passage, well, so be careful how you build, so you're going to use different materials here. Some people use wood, some people use hay, some people use uh, stone and so forth. Uh, and the fire will try to see if it lasts. And then it says at the end of that passage, nevertheless, he'll be saved. Okay, so I'm not quite sure how to, to negotiate all of that terminology. But one thing's very clear. Christ is the foundation. Be careful how you build because you might spend your entire life building to have it all wiped out. But by inference, there must be a way to build on that foundation that really has staying power and, and can, can transcend generations and actually clear to the end. It stays. It's got staying power. And that's what I'm after. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, now look here at this passage. This is my second passage that I would use to underscore the value of paying some attention to what I'm referring to here as Christian culture. You know the passage, just let me read it anyway. Verse 1. That same day, the same day, Jesus, when Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, 
And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. Look at that phraseology, because the reason that happened is they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up, and choked them. But other fell unto good ground, and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Expounded on many times. I'm not going to expound on it again, except just to point out one thing here to you about this passage. Here's a rhetorical question for you. Out of the parable of this, in the parable of the sower, what portion of it do you and I have the most control over? How much of it can we actually manage? Uh, yeah, I'm not going to ask you to answer. Just think about it. So it's a rhetorical question. So when you look at you, the sower, the seed, the soil, so forth and so on, what do we have the most control over? Farmers. If you just make the parallel and you're in your fields and you're going to plant grain and this and that and the other thing, my question is, what do you have the most control of? Well, I think it's rather obvious you can control the soil conditions. That's likely the one that you can touch and manage the most. You can't control the weather. I know you wish you could, but you can't. <laughs> uh, you, the, the, the Monsanto, I heard somebody bought them out, but whoever, they, uh, they think they have control of things, but uh, you even find out you can't even, I, you know, they give you the seed and that's it. So uh, the seed is the seed. Uh, then I could wonder. You can see the application here, so I won't try to unpack all of it, but just think about it. The obvious piece that you can actually manage and make a difference in is the soil. This is what I'm calling culture. Uh, listen, we, we need to stop being apologetic about that. There are do's and don'ts. There are things that we do and we don't do. Just like a farmer, there are some things he does and some things he doesn't do. There are some things that work and there are some things that don't work. And he just has the common sense to know that if he's going to raise some corn 200 plus bushels to the acre, he's going to have to treat that soil in a particular way or it's not going to happen. Why should we think it different in this issue of spiritual growth and strength and all of that? It's the same thing in many, many respects. And that's why I'm saying, brothers and sisters, let's pay attention to Christian culture to the actual, whether they're spoken, unspoken, just the things that, that are there that grow. They grow people into good people. Think family, think individual, think church. Think community, think broader church. And you'll see where I'm headed with that and what I'm encouraging us. What I really would like to do before we're finished this afternoon is actually give you some nuts and bolts that I think I have found in my family being valuable. And I think I have found in my church as being valuable ways in which we can actually touch and affect our culture. Here's the thing about uh, cultural changes. Cultural changes are slow. You can't just push a button and change it. If you could, I'd be out there pushing it. Uh, but but I, you can't. Uh, what you can do, though, is just like the farmer does with the soil. 
Milo, you were up there at God's Mills, but I know you didn't try farming there, but I've tried a little. <laughs> uh, most of you might not know that. I'm, I'm almost first and foremost a farmer, then a teacher. But anyway, I guess it's the other way around. But uh, anyway, there we have a very low pH uh, in God's Mills. It, you can put this, uh, you can put blueberries out there, and when you put blueberries out, you don't even have to tend to them. They just they grow all by themselves, and they they, they produce like mad. You, it's like a 5.3 or something like that, sort of natural pH there in the soil. Well, you farmers know you're not growing corn on that. Uh, okay, how long does it take to actually raise that pH to a you know a 6.8 or a 7, 9 or whatever? Up there, they estimate from uh, from uh, three to three to five years. So you you know, and it's like two or four tons of of uh, of uh, uh, lime per acre in order to, for about three years in a row to get it up there where it belongs. You can't just push a button and make it happen. It takes time, and I think that's why we tend to give up on the thing because we we just don't feel like we have the time and energy to put into it. I guess, and we see too much failure. And then I anyway, don't want to stick on. Don't want to go there and think about it in that way too much. So give me a moment here, and I want to go to a different slide. Maybe it's the next one. Yeah, I, for you to understand where I'm headed with this, I, just a couple of things here. I call these culture layers. So uh, this is just one model way to think about this. And I realize all of our models and metaphors are imperfect. Uh, they're, they're, you can, you'd be able to poke some holes here in the way I explain this to you. But I'll just uh, do the best so that you understand where I'm coming from. So there is general culture out there. Uh, when I say out there, out where? What's in here, too? You're part of general culture. Uh, there's, this, there's this whole cultural milieu out there that uh, we're, we're a part of. And uh, we sometimes talk about us and them, and that's appropriate. But on the other side of the coin, we're also embedded in it. And that's what I want to show you. Oops, just a little too fast there. So then I would give a piece of this, and this is not proportional, not even trying to make it proportional. I mean, by that, I don't know that popular Christian culture makes up, I don't know, close to 60, 70% of general culture, uh, but I'm just showing it that way here for the sake of understanding. So you have popular Christian culture, uh, and I, uh, if you're familiar with PowerPoint, you can easily see I have that, just uh, uh, made that the, the transparency so that you could see through it and see general culture. All of us look through a lens. Okay? So in some ways what I'm showing here is if you are a part of popular Christian culture, where you have a lens that you're looking through at, through that actually colors uh, the your view of popular, of, of general culture. Okay? I do want you to notice there's a dashed line around the outside. Can you see that from where you're at? Uh, okay, now I'm just going to put the next one up, and this is for sake of clarity. So uh, there, my local church culture. You could, you could do other subcultures here. Many of us are from German background. Don't think that doesn't affect you. It does. Uh, many of your likes and dislikes are just associated with those kinds of things. Okay, but, so I don't have those in here. Just for sake of clarity, just these three. And I want you to notice here that, so this is my local church culture, and so that adds another lens layer through which I look, okay? And, and I dare say that even in this congregation, and I don't know where you're all from, 
But Rich told me that he, his background is up there in uh, Lancaster County and, and uh, the, oh, what's the name of the Martindale Congregation. And so I immediately know that he has a certain lens he looks through that's probably just a little bit different than some of you. I grew up in Cumberland Valley Conference, I promise you. I, I, I got some lenses on that a little bit different. Okay. We can view that positively or negatively. It's just true. It's that way. Why do I have a solid line here and a dashed line? Well, so think back to Fleming's Petri dish and his spot of mold and the pathogenic bacteria that are growing otherwise in that culture, in that peripheral area around the, the, the mold. Well, there's communication back and forth here. And I can assure you there's plenty of argument in the Christian church as to how solid that line should be and how dashed it should be. What, what's the porosity, porous, the porosity uh, level here? How much flow back and forth? I, I guarantee in this congregation there are different views of that uh, in, in terms of its positive nature and its negative nature and so forth and so on. These are issues that I'm not going to try to resolve for you, but I can tell you churches need, congregations need to learn how to actually ask the right questions there. I'm going to give you just a little bit of help on that, I think, I hope, uh, in, in terms of this. So I'm showing clearly in popular Christian culture, there's tremendous gaps in the boundary. I, I, I'm kind of opinionated, I know it. Sorry about that. Uh, but do understand, I know when I'm kind, most of the time, I know when I'm on opinion level, and, and uh, you, you could challenge me on it, and I'd shrug my shoulders and say, you might be right. <laughs> so it feels to me as though we're really porous out there on that popular Christian culture, and there are some even who think that the more porous, the more dash, the more gaps between those dashes, the better. You will actually be able to communicate the gospel Better if you have a, a, a high porosity index there between the world and the church. Okay? Not here to argue the point right now. I'm just saying that that's put, put it on a scale of 0 to 10 and, and fill it in. <laughs> and you'll have different people thinking different things. Okay? I'd be, I'll say more about that in a minute. I put the solid line around the local congregation just to show the contrast. I have no idea how you would index this, Brother Leon or Rich or Galen or whoever, or the rest of you here in the congregation, how you would index the porosity line around the local congregation. But for the sake of argument, on the polar end of it is a good solid line that says we're not going to have any interaction. Okay, just close that gap up. And there are arguments for that. Uh, well, how do you think about it? Then, what, what, do you, what do you actually do with these kinds of questions? Well, something that has been very, very helpful to me, and I didn't suck this out of my thumb because it, some other brothers helped me. Uh, this is just uh, pointing this out. A lot of times this, this line, wherever it is, it turns out to be the identity line. This is who I belong to. Uh, and, and I'm just pointing out here that it answers the question a lot of times, who am I? And the question, or if you pluralize it, who are we? Uh, 
just let me be very clear on something here. Regardless of how you answer some of these questions I'm pushing at you, uh, I'm not a psychologist, but oh, I don't know, just you know, have sort of a working knowledge of their vocabulary there. But uh, the, the what I'm told, and I know this is by experience too, a person who does not know who they are, if they cannot have some kind of a sense of this is who I am. And there's various ways. I don't think just religion now. Just think in general. I can't think. I don't know who I am. <laughs> I grew up in the 70s. Every time I think about this question, I always have to laugh because uh, I, I graduated from high school in 1973. And I'm talking to some of my, this public schools, talk to some of my friends, you know, as we're, we're, we're getting ready to sort of disperse after graduation. And, and I say to Sam, I say, Sam, uh, so, so what are you planning for the summer? Oh, I say, oh, he doesn't know. Thinks he's going to travel west. Well, so Sam, what are, what, are you going out there to see something? Or what? Oh, no, he said, I need to figure out who I am. <laughs> this was, was so common in the early 1970s. We were all trying to figure out who we were. <laughs> because the world was in such a, a turmoil, as, or at least it felt to us as young folks. Um, this is not my key point, but just listen to it. If there are no boundaries, there is no culture. If there are no boundaries, there is no culture. If there are no boundaries, you don't know who you are. Uh, that's, that's, I didn't tell you how to build boundaries. I didn't tell you what they should look like. I do know what, I have an idea of what they shouldn't look like. <laughs> uh, but I do know one thing. No boundaries. There's no culture. No boundaries. You don't know who you are. Uh, you have no idea how to describe yourself. And, and that's one of the reasons why I think we feel so lost. Please do not hear me arguing from an older method of building boundaries and so forth and so on. I I, I know there's huge faults and problems with that. can be pathogenic, actually. But I also know very well that if there are no boundaries, there's no culture. And if there's no boundaries, you don't know who you are. Now, a little bit more on that then, just moving forward. Uh, here's some notes on culture that have been really, really, really helpful for me as I've thought through this personally and so on. Uh, first of all, it's extremely important for a culture to identify its core virtues and its core values. I'm amazed at how short-sighted we are here and sort of thrash around on the periphery, uh, knocking each other around on different issues, whether, I, you know, whether it's dress standards or whatever it is. Uh, and it, without actually asking ourselves a serious question, what is the core value here? What is the core virtue that we're trying to uphold? I absolutely have to get that one. You have to start there. Because if you don't, then, yeah, like I said, you're just thrashing on the edges. Um, this is a lifetime of work, and this is hard work. I just will be very clear with you. This is the hardest work I have ever done in church administration is to work on trying to for, even to clarify in my own heart. It's, where am I at here? What, what's the core issue? Well, let's just look at a few things here. Uh, here's danger on blindness. Four points that I'd like to give to you that, that are blinders that, that make it difficult to see all this. The first one is uh, there is, and these are not in order of importance, they're just four of them. Integration mode. Uh, if you think back to my, my earlier diagram there, so what do I mean by integration mode? Well, you can see there, adapting to and coasting toward the norms of mainstream culture practice. That's that porosity, that porous 
boundary, okay? Uh, now, look, I'm going to tell you that most of you and I am in one of these four categories that I'm going to give to you. So there's, there's the integration mode. And uh, that's where we're trying really hard to integrate. I already said enough about that, but that's one of them. Defensive mode. I, idealizing local culture, ignoring faults, and even fatal flaws. Now, I happen to be in this category. Here's the thing about it. It's good if you know what category you're in. Because if you know where you're at, then you at least might be able to, to, to develop the sensibility not to get carried away there. <laughs> so since I know that I will tend to defend the culture, since I know that, well, then I just know that I have to pay attention to I may go overboard in my defense. And in my, in my tendency to go overboard in the defense, I may totally ignore the, the, the serious flaws that are there. That's a mistake. That's just a, it's a mistake. You know that, and I know it. But here's the problem. If you don't know that you're in that category, well, the problem is then you, you, you tend, it's hard, it tends to blind you. You, you don't, can't see Likewise, if you're in integration mode, it's the same thing. If you're there, it's hard to see where that process of integration actually is eroding things and, and sort of robbing. From, remember, the issue's core values is actually undercutting uh, core values. And, and, it, and in my zest for getting more children into children's club, I tend to undermine core values some. And I just picked that one off the top of my hat there. I don't know if it's an issue or not. But I'm just saying, those are the kinds of things that can happen. But there are more than that. There is reactive mode. And there may be some combinations here. Reactive mode is when I am reacting to specifics, ignoring the strengths of core values. Here again, I can be, I, if I'm in this mode, I can be thrashing around at the edges about things that I'm not saying that they're not, they're not, that don't have some importance. They shouldn't be discussed. But, I, and, and I'm, I'm ignoring that there are core values here that somehow I'm affecting when I'm doing that. Now, most of you have seen this somewhere or another, experienced it, uh, where somebody is, I don't know, they're on a continuum moving from A to B to C or wherever, and, and uh, it, in that movement, uh, you, you sense a pretty strong reaction. If they're for it, I'm against it. <laughs> doesn't matter what it is. If they're for it, I'm against it. Uh, okay, well, that's just, it's reactive mode, okay? I've been there before. It's good if you just admit right up front to the congregation, look, I mean in the conversation, I know I'm in reactive mode. I'm sorry, but here's what I'm thinking. <laughs> that's helpful to know that that's the case. It's helpful for me when I realize, ask Sheila sometimes, my wife, she's my sounding board, you know, and we'll God, be blowing off like everything, and I'll just say, well, oh, I'm in reactive mode, and I know it's, I'm sorry about that, but, <laughs> well, that's helpful. At least I found it helpful to, to correct that tendency to all of a sudden go over the cliff on, on some position that I suddenly have taken that, uh, that really is not tenable over the long haul. But remember, the question that I need to keep coming back to here is how am I affecting the core values? What really is happening there as I am finding my way through this? One more here I think I have. 
and uh, well, this is, can cause blindness. Failure to recognize the roots and relationships between specifics and core va- uh, virtues and values. If you separate them too far, you have a problem. Uh, uh, because they normally are related in, in some fashion. I'll have an example or so here. I probably should uh, create a break here at 11 o'clock. Is that, where am I at here? Gail, is that a decent time too? Or Okay, so I guess we just a few more minutes here. Living out core values. Here are three things that have been very, very helpful to me that brings me back to ask the questions that need to be asked. And uh, let me just read these passages. Uh, they're just one verse each. But I found them really, really helpful as I've tried to sort out a few things. Chapter 6 and verse 12. All things, you know, Paul astounds me now and then. On this, things of, uh, on this thing of do's, do's and don'ts or, or of law, this is really, Paul says, well, all things are lawful unto me. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Yeah, that settles the question. All things are lawful unto me. You know, if you stop there, it settles everything. <laughs> but it's an astounding statement. It opens the door pretty wide. But all things are not expedient. All things, he states it again, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 23 gives the third piece here. Uh, He almost, uh, uh, 10.23 I mean. He almost repeats himself, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, for me. but here he changes the word, but all things edify not. So he uses three, not three words, the one I actually infer here. But here are the questions that help us to ask, help us to think about it in terms of core values. Now my assumption here is we've made some headway on identifying core values. And I'm saying ahead of time, if we don't know that, you better back up and th- get those, think about them again. So what are our core values? But assuming we do, and then here's the question. Here's something up for grabs. Since all things are lawful, but we have some categories to think about them. <laughs> but all things are not expedient. So the question is, is it expedient? It is whatever, fill in the blank. Is it expedient? Is it necessary? Is it helpful? Will it really make a difference? This thing that I'm considering to do or not to do. In relationship to the core values, I am absolutely astounded how easy it is to separate the two. So I, I, it's going to sound judgmental, forgive me. But so I, sometimes I see, I, I'll be talking to a dad, and a dad is telling me that, well, this is what he would like for his children. And then I, I see decisions being made in places we go and things we do that absolutely do not align themselves with that. What he just got done saying was his core value. And then he wonders why in the world my family is in such disarray. Now, don't hear, I, I said it sounds judgmental. I'm just raising that, just saying that that kind of disparity between what I say is a core value and what I actually do and practice allow or permit or don't permit or whatever, it has to have a reasonable alliance, uh, alignment 
for it makes no sense. It carries no oomph with it, whether it be my teenage or whoever it is. But align them, be able to articulate the core values and show how my actions are expedient in light of those core values. And you answer some questions differently than they get answered otherwise. The second one here is, does identify. These are actually not new ideas. I promise you, I, I, I don't know if I've ever heard Brother Leon preach or Galen or, or Rich. I don't know if I have. But I bet you they've said to you before, take into account the brotherhood. <laughs> does it edify? Does it, actually, does it actually strengthen? Does it actually build up? You know, some questions are so easy to answer if, or some decisions, this way or that, are so easy to answer if you ask that, that question. What, does it, what's it going to build? What's it actually going to accomplish? How, are we go- how am I going to be better? How is my church going to be better as a result of this decision? Now, I know you can't in everyday life if you're trying to decide whether you're buying that, that hammer or that hammer. I don't know if it matters. Uh, there's a lot of issues like that. It doesn't matter. I'm, of course, I'm talking about issues that matter, that make a difference in what's happening. And the third one is, will it enslave? This is a big one for me. Think about the culture that is developing around social media today. Listen, this is a culture. We're in huge cultural formation and cultural change in terms of communication and the way things are done just by social media alone. And and I'm not one just to, to wind up with a rock and throw it at it and to draw a thick line and say, okay, have none of it. But it is an issue. There are questions to be asked about it because we, right as I'm speaking to you, look at this piece of machinery. Milo, when I was started, first started to teach school, I'd have thought I'd die and went to heaven, a piece like of, of equipment like that. Uh, I won't even go into all the details of those heroic days, you know, when we didn't have all this stuff. Uh, but I'm just saying that huge <laughs> uh, shifts in the way we actually do things, and here's some, here's some questions that have helped to guide me. Should I buy that? Should I, should I buy into that program? Should I not? You know, what's pro- here's some practical questions I started to, to use. So a person comes to me and says, hey, did you see such and such and such a new program? Blah, 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 blah. You can take care of grades, and I, I have a question for them. So how's it going to save you some time? If they can't answer that question, I say, I'm sorry, I don't want it. Uh, how long is it going to take me to learn how to use that program? Now, I, I already have a program that's working, you understand. Uh, and they, they, they t- tell me or whatever. It's hard to convince me because if, it's, if, it's going to fe- if it feels to me like it's enslaving, I don't care if it sounds really good. I ain't getting it. I'm not bothered with it. I already have something that works. And, and it really works well, and it takes me about five minutes to do it, to do what I'm doing. To, to just, just to give you an example, I use Microsoft Excel to do my grading. Okay? I, I, it, it pays me to learn how to use Excel, Excel really well because it is so powerful in so many ways. So I can just do that. You can buy these really sophisticated, fancy grading systems, and, well, okay, they're okay in their own way. But it's like trying to use a bulldozer to do what a lawn tractor would do. Uh, I, and that's... Okay, just using, pushing at you, try to make these questions practical and how you actually 
make decisions day in and day out. I want to give a break here.